Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nickturn. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan. So hello, everyone. This is Ethan Nickturn. Welcome or welcome back to the Road Home podcast. I'm excited uh, today because I get to talk to somebody I really like to talk to. Um, and uh, also because we're talking about art and Dharma, which is, uh, you know, a really favorite and awesome topic. So I'm here with my old friend who's uh, uh, is a meditation teacher, is a artist, a performance artist, um, an art historian, it turns out, uh, and uh, also an author of the new book, Look, 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 Again. Uh, Wait, I got, it's five looks. Look, 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 (laughs) look again. Buddhist wisdom reflected in 26 artists. Uh, So Kevin Townley is here with us. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Hey, Ethan, I'm great, and I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm really, it's, it feels, it does feel like coming home since uh, you taught me how to be a meditation teacher <laughs> in the spirit of full disclosure. Yeah. All right. Well, that's awesome. I definitely didn't teach you how to write this book, although a lot of no. themes that we have both studied are definitely present in the book. But so this book, just to give uh, sort of an overview, uses this, what is basically a, a tantric buddhist mapping of what's called the five wisdom energies which is uh my favorite one of my favorite sort of um system uh organizations in in all of buddhism uh and definitely in uh tibetan or tantric buddhism uh to analyze the work of uh 26 artists mostly visual uh artists um so how did how did you get here? How did you get to this to this book? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. So for part of my livelihood, I I'd been working with a third party tour company that was giving art tours to the public and to like private corporations or whatever uh, all around the country. And I've always really loved art. It I, I admire painters and sculptors so much. It's not something I particularly have ever done much in a disciplined way. But when I was pretty young, I was inspired by, like a lot of people, by Sister Wendy, who had that, there was an art nun on PBS, and she would kind of go into art galleries and have these sort of off-kilter takes on the great works. And her, her view was basically that art is an expression of human emotion, of, human, of humanity, and uh, that while art changes, it doesn't get better. So that the art made by the, you know, the people in the caves of Lascaux, like she says, painting starts at the top. So already it's, it's just brilliant, uh, a complete expression of what it is to be a genuine person, which, by the way, is also what Buddhism is about. Um, but when I would do tours, sometimes we would do tours at the Rubin Museum of Art. And, you know, with like finance people or, you know, whatever, like you take them around, they want to go to the Rubin because it's near their conference room and so it's convenient. (laughs) But then they walk in and they see these crazy sculptures of like erotic union and odd tankas. And they're like, what? Or like giant wheels held by demons with, you know, livestock frolicking in the middle. They're like, what the hell's going on here? And, but what I found was like, if I could take the time to actually explain to them what it was about, everyone got it. Everyone understood, oh, all of this crazy stuff that happens in my life is the result of like this pig, this rooster, and this snake, and how they're like dosy doing. So it occurred to me that like these images were meant to communicate to human beings and the the language, the symbology, of course, like is maybe specific to a particular time and place and culture, but that the message is the same. And if you can kind of unlock it a little bit, then it starts to communicate. And the fact, like, you know, Buddhism was an oral tradition first, but 
also an, an imagistic tradition after that, before things were even like written down. And so that like the way that art can communicate to us is so immediate and so visceral and so non-conceptual that it, it seemed to me that, that it wasn't just like an accident, you know, it wasn't like, oh, well, we ran out of things to say, so maybe we'll paint this image. No, the image is a way of like, uh, kind of short circuiting the, the mind's desire to conceptualize everything in a, in a, uh, sort of linear way. So anyway, I just started to think, well, if that's true, if, if Sister Wendy's right, and that art is an expression of what it is to be human, and if Buddhism is right, that these teachings are about what it is to be human, beyond, not not at odds with, but beyond a particular relative place or culture, then would it not be possible to explore Buddhist teachings through secular art, art that was like not ever particularly intended to be religious or spiritual any more than just the fact that I think art making is spiritual in its way. And so I I decided, you know, if you don't have like startling images from another culture that you can't even relate to it in any way, maybe you could still approach these Buddhist teachings uh, through an imagistic way and try to like unpack what those energies are that we call emotions and which are described in the five wisdom energy uh, teachings. So that was very long-winded. I hope I answered. Yeah, no, that's, well, podcasts are long-winded, so that's 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 the beauty. Oh, of you just great! Talk. I, I'm no, in my milieu. <laughs> doesn't have to be edited down. You just you just say um a lot. You say some clear, things, etc. Clear my throat. Can I say bad? <laughs> can I say bad words on this podcast? I, I do. Yeah, and they don't. Okay, they don't. Well, that's a um, that's a fucking relief. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the, the be here now. I mean, I don't just try to, you know, like I'm not just a cuss pot, you know. But but if, if no. something if something needs to be said, you know, it needs. All to right. Be said. Um. So okay, so we have this term Dharma art, which I think was coined by by Chogyam Trungpa, and you know, I've whenever I've been asked to like talk to or speak to this and you know i i am a big fan of art i the, the only art of i i like to draw i'm bad at it the only art i've ever been good at is writing you know and um basically good at like actually done and people wanted to read and said you're good at this and i would like to read more not everybody says that of course but um but uh, so so the first definition of dharma art you know which in some ways is the most narrow and rigid which is not what this book is about is Buddhist art, meaning like art that expresses directly like the Buddhist historical, cultural symbolism and iconography. And Buddhism is incredibly rich in terms of having art be part of the representation of the teachings and culture around the teachings. Um, Yes. I won't say more so than other spiritual traditions, but possibly more so than other spiritual traditions, especially Tibetan and Tantric Buddhism. It's incredibly symbolic visual iconographic system. The other, which I think people are like um, interested in a lot, and I would love to hear you talk to at some point, is how does your meditation practice and, um, you know, studying Buddhism or being a Buddhist or Buddhist person, how does that influence the art you make, right? So what's the connection between one's own practice and that person's artistic process? Um, But this... I think the book is coming from what I would say of the three definitions is the most interesting to me, which is art that doesn't know it's Buddhist. Although I think one of the 26, maybe more, Laurie Anderson is a Buddhist practitioner. Um, But but art that expresses something about the nature of reality or the nature of mind um, or the nature of emotion through the through the five wisdoms. Um, so are you interested in the other two? I mean, you, you gave tours at the Rubin, so I know you're interested in Buddhist art. Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. But I, I don't know. I, when you were talking about this, I remember, you know, talking to some friends who were tantric practitioners and I was working on a, a piece that really had nothing at all to do with Buddhism 
And it, the subject matter was pretty grim and a little so- soap opera-y. And they were like, well, I hope it has a Buddhist ending. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, shit, it kind of doesn't. It kind of ends with recrimination and dread. And I, and I had been doing a workshop that same weekend with uh, Judy Leaf, who is the kind of great sage of the Buddha family or Buddha wisdom energy teachings. And I, and I talked to her about this in an interview and I was like, you know, the, my story's kind of like about revenge and lust. And it's just, I, I don't think it really has a Buddhist energy. She's like, who asked that? I was like, those people are, she's like, what a stupid question. Of course. She's like, that, it's a complete misunderstanding of basic goodness. Uh, write whatever you want. And it's, and it is an expression of basic goodness. So to me, like, I think obviously there is art that is directly expressive of a, of a, of a teaching, or that's kind of like encapsulating the pith meaning of the, whatever, the teachings of Vasubandhu or the Heart Sutra or whatever. And that's fabulous. It's, it's great. Those are incredibly enlivening and, and enriching. But to me, I think what is uh, particularly uh, enriching to me or what, what has been enriching to me from, from particularly like Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings is that everything is, your, is, is the Buddha. Everything is Dharma. There, there is no separation. And he said, I think in an essay about calligraphy, like if you have to fill out an, an employment form or a resume, don't put artists down. It's, it's much more respectable to put house cleaner or businesswoman. Because if you put artists down, then what that means is you've bifurcated or uh, segregated so-called creativity into the realm of uh, the workplace, when in fact, the path of the Dharma is to see your life as a creative act. Every aspect of it is imbued with artistry. So I think whether anybody has even heard of the Dharma or not, if they are meeting their own minds with a sense of openness, curiosity, a willingness to receive or express anything, uh, then that is that is dharma, even if, you know, it's not particularly showing a dakini or white tara or, or, or something. And this kind of preciousness about like, well, it better have a happy ending or not have like bad words or a sex scene in it, uh, or else it's not Buddhism. It's just like, it's totally like banal, I think, not to get at my dear friends who asked me that question, <laughs> who I love, but it's just like, I find kind of wearying. So uh, to me, like what I respect about the artists in the, what I respect about the artists I, I love and that I think all of the artists in the book have in common is they come to their work not knowing what's going to happen next and have a willingness to meet the like leading edge of their difficult emotions, whether that's showing up in the five main uh afflictive emotions that are described in in the Buddha families or the wisdom energies, which are ignorance, like not wanting to look at your own mind, not wanting to not know what's going to go on the canvas, you know, the dread of the blank page. Uh, And so you do anything else other other than your work or thinking like, I just went to the museum yesterday with a friend and we saw this Louise Bourgeois painting show, which is incredible. And she was like, God, I would just like never think to paint something like that. And I was like, well, she didn't either. No one, <laughs> she didn't sit down and think like, how can I make a crazy design that looks like trees going into hell or whatever? This is like what, what arose in her mind. I mean, I don't know, know her. Of course she's dead. Maybe she did think about it, but like, it seems to me that there's like a willingness to sit with the discomfort of your own mind. And from that, you can express uh, the energy of aggression or pride or grasping or competition or the wisdom aspects of those which we can get into. But to me, that's like a direct corollary with meditation is that fundamentally you have to be willing to sit with yourself, even if it's just for a little while and see what like, 
how how you're not going to like get control of the, these crazy energies. You're not going to like you're not the boss of them. <laughs> they will <laughs> and they will hand your your ass to you if you think that you are. And the degree to which we're like obsessed with being like nice people who don't like have bad thoughts anymore because we meditated enough is just like I mean good luck with that. And and if as as one teacher of mine said like if if that's your experience come talk to me i want to hear about it <laughs> yeah yeah chances are you're probably suppressing or bypassing something yeah exactly yeah, yeah. and it's it's amazing the extent to which others who either are usually aren't practitioners kind of project that on to like you know well you, you, that's not very buddhist of you you know you cursed or you know, you have these opinions or you have these judgments of, you know, or you have these emotional reactions to things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And uh, I have a very funny story, weird story about my, in the early days of the pandemic, uh, you know, when uh, my daughter and I, who was, you know, she was just going on three at that time. Uh, she became obsessed with this YouTube clip of a story of Louise Bourgeois as an old woman peeling a tangerine and telling this old story about her father. Uh, uh, and basically her father being psychologically abusive, but, uh, you know, and then she became obsessed with Louise Bourgeois spiders. So anyway, who knew that was kid art, but. <laughs> yeah, totally though it is. It's everybody art. Yeah. So let's let's get into the the five Buddha families, also known as the five wisdom energies. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you explain what that structure of teachings and model is is all about because you explain each one so well in the book, and that's what I thought was really, um, you know, sometimes when you say you're impressed by someone's work it can be taken as a backhanded compliment because they're like, what, you didn't know I was smart? But I was actually <laughs> quite impressed with both your ability to express this Dharma teaching model and, you know, your your, your knowledge and investment in art history uh, was really um, amazing to read, actually. And, uh, um, and so, you know, you do such a good job talking about the five wisdom energies and are so playful and also witty with it. So what, how would you describe the five wisdom energies to a finance guy who just hired you to tour um, the Rubin Museum? <laughs> oh, good question. Well, at the Rubin Museum, they would likely be depicted uh, in a tanka or like in a mandala painting. And so mandala means circle. And you, I think of it as kind of a a, a blueprint, like literally like how a blueprint is laid out. You're seeing a bird's eye view of some structure. And mandala can be uh, a society. It can be a professional organization. It can be a family. It can be a person. It can be uh, a cell. It can be the universe. So it's about like a conglomeration of seemingly disparate parts and aspects that come together to create a, a seeming whole. And, but in particular, it's pointing out how like as human beings, we have, you know, the Buddha said life is suffering and we have these difficult feelings that come up. Uh, I don't remember, maybe you remember like exactly how many Kleshas, they're said to be like, I don't know, like 84,000 or someone said they didn't have the internet. So they were like, well, let's sit down and, count all the ways we feel terrible depends in the, on the model but there's there's either these five or there's uh, six root ones when you include yeah. wrong view and then there's 20 subsidiary ones in, in one of the abhidharma models so 26 oh. in some lists sometimes eighty four thousand. right <laughs> it's like in for a penny in for a pound uh so the five main ones of which well the main three ones are passion aggression and ignorance and then uh, there's kind of like spinoffs, like uh, the Jeffersons was a spinoff of all of the families. So, uh, rot, uh, well, we'll get into it, but like pride is a spinoff of uh, craving or grasping. And then uh, jealousy and competition is a spinoff of aggression. So the five main ones are uh, ignorance, ang uh, aggression, pride, craving, and jealousy. So uh, 
structurally, you see a circle. At the center of it is a of this circle is another circle, a hub of the wheel. And then the outer circle is divided into four quadrants. So each of these sections represents a Buddha family. Uh, and each, like they literally are, you know, ruled or overseen by a different uh, Buddha, a uh, different emanation of, of, uh, of Buddha. And so the, the, the term Buddha family is kind of like, like a genus in the way that you would have like a, a species and a subspecies. Like that's the kind of uh, use of that uh, word. At the very center of the hub is literally, it's called the Buddha family. Uh, so that's easy to remember. <laughs> uh, it, they each have a color, a time of year, a, a, a time of day, uh, all, the, all, all kind of pointing to the fact that these energies are permeate every aspect of our experience. But anyway, so at the center of the wheel, uh, traditionally the color is white. It's called the Buddha family. And the confused energy shows up as ignorance. And you could say that that's basically the, the crux of the problem. We think of ourselves as separate, discrete individuals that are going to like win or lose somehow. And, uh, and we're off to the races. Now, each ignorance or each uh, confused energy has a wisdom aspect. So in our culture, in Western culture, we think like, well, we've got to get rid of like negativity and then we'll have just positivity left and everything will be fabulous. Well, the Buddhist non-dual view is, well, actually those two things, what you think of positive, uh, think of it as positive and negative are actually not different things. They are different experiences of the same energy and, and they take on uh, negative experiential qualities to the degree to which we fixate and identify with the experience of that energy. Uh, so ignorance is uh, seen as all-encompassing space. So I remember Pema Chodron saying once that uh, <laughs> fear and anxiety is ego's experience of wide open space. So mm -hmm. at the at the core of our experience is emptiness and luminosity, and just about anything can happen. And it, but rather than finding that liberating and thrilling, the ego who wants to know what's happening next freaks out and shuts down and uh, averts its gaze. Uh, so all encompassing space is the uh, tension of of ignorance. Then, uh, oh, so, so the time of year of, of this is said to be, uh, like early or is like winter. So like snow covered fields, the color is white. Uh, when you can kind of not tell the difference between the sky and the ground, like it's foggy, uh, it can be, uh, disorienting, but it can also be, you know, totally liberating. Cause when you don't, when you don't jump to conclusions, uh, then and don't move much, then what does arise is very, very clear. So then you've got, uh, in the east, you've got uh, Vajra. Now this is the color blue. Uh, a Vajra is a ceremonial object that uh, is represents a lightning bolt, a, a diamond light, lightning bolt that uh, cuts through confusion, like uh, in a pretty intense blasting sort of way. Uh, the, this is also known as aggression, the energy of anger and aggression. Uh, the wisdom aspect is called mirror-like wisdom. So this, uh, so Buddha family doesn't really have an element associated with it because it is commensurate with space in which elements arise. But the uh, element of Vajra is water and water both has a reflective quality when it's still it just reflects back clearly whatever is in juxtaposition with it uh and uh, lama sultra malioni write, writes about how water is the only element that can be like can freeze it vaporizes and can singe you uh so it can be a liquid it can be a solid it can be a vapor and so and that anger can be like that as well but 
that the intensity of that experience that we call anger also has a lot of wisdom in it. As we know, you know, in the last few years, we've been seeing protests and civil action and uh, people mobilizing. Well, the reason people are mobilized is because they're pissed off (laughs) and with good reason. And so if we like got rid of like what we call aggression, then we might all just be sort of like getting wrinkled in our hot tubs or whatever. So the idea is that that energy that we call anger is actually very galvanizing. It's very direct. It's penetrating. And it can uh, really uh, affect active change. Uh, An example I often think of is like Martin Luther King Jr. He had a hell of a lot to be pissed off about, and I'm sure he was, but he, he... was able to embody the energy of anger in a way that wasn't punitive, but was still very active. And uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, I know, writes saying that uh, anger without hatred is compassion. And so that's kind of the, the quality of mirror-like wisdom. And also seeing in the mirror-like quality that whatever emotion you are, you are experiencing is your emotion. And so you also are able to take responsibility for that. Uh, in the south is called Ratna. Its color is gold. Its time of year is the harvest or autumn. Uh, and it's very like Chris, Chris, ghost or Christmas present, like beneficent, cornucopia, overflowing Thanksgiving time. Uh, it's ignorant uh, or it's uh, encumbered energy is known as pride or uh, arrogance. So there's a sense of under underneath pride is really like a feeling of being ineffectual, not good enough. People don't like you. You didn't go to the right school. People, they're, they're all going to laugh at you. Uh, and so you have to like get a gold plated toilet and have steaks named after yourself in order to feel like you're worthwhile. <laughs> you know, not to mention yeah. any names. Uh, but you, but so then it like can like lead into hoarding and hydraulic relationships. And then to like really feel like you're worthwhile, you have to make sure that those people over there feel like shit and you have to like round them up and get them out of town or whatever. And, but it's all based on this very tenuous wrong view, which is that you're separate from them and that you're not good enough as you are already and that there's an inherent poverty. Uh, so, so the wisdom energy of Ratna is called equanimity, which is seeing the equality in all beings and things and that whatever situation you have is innately enriched and that you don't need to disenfranchise another in order to lead a good life. Uh, then this moves into the West, which is uh, the, oh, the color of that, by the way, of Ratna is gold. And so the, in the West, you have Padma, which is the red fire lotus. And this is one of the central metaphors of Buddhism in general, which is that the beautiful lotus base that we see at the surface of the pond is growing out of slime and muck. So this is a metaphor if you haven't caught on to us, which is like human beings, we have a lot of confusion and negativity and crapola going on, but the the wisdom, the lotus requires it. It it is not separate from that. So if we got if we drained the pond and just put like beautiful jade stones at the bottom of it, the lotus would die. There wouldn't be anything uh to nurture it. So uh this is uh grasping or craving, wanting something that you don't have. The idea in science, this is called the dopaminergic urge, you know, wanting some new, fabulous, exciting experience, but not the one that you're having now because it sucks and it's covered in dust and it's a little dog-eared. So what's so interesting about this, like this is like, you know, the energy that like spurs affairs and maybe even like invading other countries in an extreme case. Uh, But like, it's kind of like the Casanova syndrome or also like a stalkery vibe. If anyone watched that TV show you and like the reason why he's able, I mean, I haven't seen it, but my, my boyfriend has, but like the reason why he can like seduce the people is because he like really pays attention to them and like knows what they like and what kind of music is their thing and all of that. So so the the message of this energy is like, well, you could just like use the same energy that's like got you counting the hair follicles on your object of your affection 
but apply it to something else, like to the the who's going to be on the team for the new toothpaste commercial, or do those drapes really go with the the duvet cover? You know, it's called discriminating awareness. So, like, it's like in in partner or in contrast to equanimity, which is like, hey, it's all good and everything's fabulous and we're all the same. This energy is like, yeah, but also not like look at this 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 ostrich has like feathers that go down you know halfway down its leg and the other one doesn't and you know like it's like the ability to notice those details which is is important and can be used to compassionate and see in that like you could see oh this person actually needs this from me or i actually need to like step out of this situation so this person can uh find the help that they need which doesn't involve me uh but it's about being attuned to the situation rather than like your habit or projection. Uh, and then lastly, in the north, oh, the element of that is, is fire, by the way. And Ratna is earth. If you're taking notes, I apologize. Uh, and then uh, in the north is, uh, the color is green. It's called karma, karma family. Uh, and this image, the symbolic image is uh, a double vajra or a double-sided sword this is about c- competition. You like you you feel like all of this like frenetic energy. I mean, this is like if you have a smartphone and haven't looked at it in like eight minutes, you're like, oh my god, what's happening? That's like karma energy. The 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 kind of like weird treadmill we, we're on in this consumerist society where we feel like we're not participating if we're not like networking or shopping or or doing something. We just can't sit still, and so we're like all running all over the place. And comparing ourselves to the neighbors and all that sort of a thing. So, in in the uh, uh, teachings of the the six realms, this is like the jealous god realm, come competing and, and and fighting and completely vibrating all the time. So that's exhausting. And the uh, wisdom is called all accomplishing wisdom energy. So on one hand, uh, as it's been described, like you take the attitude that whatever you want to achieve is already done. It's completed somewhere. And your job is just to get there, not to like worry about whether it's going to happen. And anything that you perceive to be an obstacle is just an indication that maybe this isn't the right way to go. And you, you try a different direction instead of banging your head against the wall. But the other view of all accomplishing wisdom is you can't do anything other than what you're doing. Like I remember one teacher saying in, in a lecture hall, none of you can leave this room right now. I mean, the doors weren't locked, but he was right. We couldn't leave. We were all there. Now in three seconds, we could get up or whatever. But like said, anyone listening to that, you can't stop listening to me right now. <laughs> Sorry. And then turn off, click, click, click. But the idea is like, there isn't anything else. So everything that you possibly could have ever accomplished in all of your lifetimes has already been done. It's already accomplished in this instant right now. So that energy of like vibrating freneticism, we usually take to be pointing somewhere else in the distance, but it can also just point us right back to where we already are. Mm. So, So these five confusions and five wisdoms, I think what's interesting and what I've kind of come to see about them is that they you know, we talk about like transmuting and transcending and whatever, but like, I don't think the feeling of mirror like wisdom feels differently than anger or what I'm calling anger. And I don't necessarily think that like jealousy feels different than all accomplishing wisdom. So these are like intense energies. These are intense, intense feelings that we experience as humans. And if we think that like, we're going to like sand the rough edges off of them, I think we probably have another thing coming. And, uh, but anyway, that's, we can get more into that. Yeah. That's like a vague <laughs> or maybe overly wordy. Yeah. No, it's very, very, very comprehensive. So the, the five wisdom energies, right? So each of them has a, a basic elemental and emotional patterning. And these are kind of like the energies of the mind and the energies of, of the world. And the beauty of this model is you you stop seeing sort of different ways of being in the world as either like good or evil, but it's really more how we're accessing and relating to these basic energies 
of our being. And you start seeing the world more in terms of wisdom manifestation and confusion and see that those are coming from the same space, right? Yes, and that it puts it into the realm of aesthetics. Mm-hmm. It's you can be having like a jealous fit, but the and the feeling isn't like. But jealousy is just a label. Jealousy is just a word you made up or someone made up that you've adopted to this experience. But you could just as easily call it air or green or mm-hmm. uh, summertime. You know. The which is also an expression of this exact same energy. And I think that's what like good art does too. Like you can look at a painting which may well have been painted out of like the most excruciating emotional landscape of the artist. And maybe you're getting a hit off of that or you're not, but you're still being invited into a a human and a human experience that is slightly liberated from a lot of immediate uh, labels and codif- codifying uh, genres or whatever right. I'm just saying, saying words. But that like the Buddha, what I love about the Buddha families is that they are the language of, of art and creativity. Yeah. So to say that another way, it's you stop kind of pathologizing experience and you start exploring it from a qualitative um, you know, more, more kind of taste or sensory experience of like what, what you know, if if jealousy were a color, what color would it be? They say green, right? But if yeah, if, if it had a like texture, you know, what what would it be? And and so that really relates to the the quality, the emotional qualities of artists' work, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yet texture, all of these things which are inherently non-conceptual they're experiential through the body through the sense faculties right so how did you then what you did was you took 26 artists and you kind of categorized their work as representational or maybe dominating in each of the five energies so so how did you choose the artists i mean there's some artists in here who i've always thought were incredibly mandala oriented like Hilma off Klint, for example like yeah like was kind of playing with mandalas you know before yes many in the western world knew what before it was cool before it was cool (laughs) (laughs) um so how like how did you think of the artists you used one friend in here uh nula clark i saw yes her work old friend from the interdependence project um laurie anderson it makes sense that a Buddhist, you know, teacher and thinker would include Laurie Anderson's work in a book about Dharma art. But how did you, like, how did Agnes Martin get in here? How did all these other uh, people be like, these are the artists I want to use to represent these energies and the exploration of them? Yeah, it was very intuitive and like based kind of on my understanding of of the energies. But like Agnes Martin was is an artist that I've known about and have loved and have been very interested in. And I, I knew that she, like the kind of mythology around her was that she's sort of this inscrutable, zeny, uh, creative cipher who uh, made these equally inscrutable, uh, minimalist abstract paintings. Like there's almost like, at, at first glance, it's like almost there's like almost nothing there. It's like a gray wash on a huge canvas with like little graphite lines. And and when you when I've shown those paintings to people, they get really angry. They're like, what the hell is this? Why is it called rose? That's not a rose. It's just like some lines. This is who this why is this even doing on a wall? But like the more you look at it, the more you kind of like start to resonate with it. But anyway, like that to me is like so Buddha, like you, you're sitting in this space. There's like basically like very few reference points. The reference points are pointing all over the place into opposite directions. And you become frustrated with the mind for not yielding what you expect you deserve after all you've been through and blah, blah, blah. And in her, she spoke about, she said, you know, for 20 years, I sat in a chair and wait for inspiration to come. I don't move. I don't paint from ideas. And when uh, inspiration comes, I can see it. And then uh, I just, my job is to try to like 
write down or uh, translate as faithfully as I can the image in my mind onto a piece of paper. And then I expand it outward on a giant grid and that's it. So the idea that you are receiving thoughts, these are gifts that are being given to you. We're not, as the teacher Byron Katie said, we're not thinking we're being thought. So if you're very still, if you've trained yourself in meditation, you see what you have coming to you, which might be a horror show or it might be lovely or boring or whatever. So I just thought her process, her way of approaching uh, the kind of receiving of whatever the idea wanted to be and trying to faithfully communicate that was very Buddha. But some also, just specifically about her, she was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic early in her adulthood. And it is said that um, Buddha energy is like the, the wisest of the wisdoms, but and not to make any sort of clinical disparagement, but it's the craziest of the crazy. Like it can get the most neurotic because the opposite of space is concrete. It's like total solidity for going from no reference point anywhere to reference points everywhere uh, makes you uh, paralyzed. And, and she did have experiences where she would go into catatonic states. She didn't know who she was. uh, And it was obviously very difficult. So, so she seemed in her practice to kind of personally uh, represent both the wisdom and the confused aspect of the energy and her work like itself is is also does that and and res- some people just like love sitting in front of these uh delicate but large uh sort of subsuming images and others go nuts but that's what but energy is about <laughs> it can be co- equally comforting or infuriating so uh, there are, and like one other quick example is I was listening, I had doing the dishes and listening to this audio book of Peter Sheldahl. And he was talking about the artist Jay DeFeo, who created this like 1000 or it's like a one ton painting over eight years. She kind of like became completely consumed by this painting, which took over her whole apartment. And they had to like, she finally got evicted and like her, any sense of any other responsibility went out the window and they had to like take part of the wall out of the building to forklift the painting. (laughs) And I was like, that's how, that's also very Buddha. Like it starts with like, well, I'm going to do some painting. And then you like get lost for eight years and they then have to take you out on a forklift. (laughs) So that like space can also become completely heavy as hell. Yeah. Um, I just had a karma thought about that. Like, did she own the apartment or rent it? And how did that work? <laughs> she was, yeah, exactly. She was renting it and they got evicted. Uh, yeah. So then in like, in other cases, there were artists that I was like, okay, I was working on Ratna and I was like, Ratna obviously is about like jewels and bling and, you know, Ratna means like wish fulfilling jewel, but it's also about decomposition and uh, it's like gross and can be kind of like, so I was like, I just was like, Googled messy decomposing food art. (laughs) And then this fabulous artist, Dana Sherwood came up Mm -hmm. and she makes these fabulous, like, like eat your heart out, Martha Stewart feasts for wild animals. They're like spiral cakes and things. And she leaves them out overnight and then films on infrared cameras, like what the raccoons and possums do to these like fabulous tea parties, which I thought was like very rotten and, and it's host hosting its its beneficence and also it's like crazy messy chaos yeah food food art seems inherently rotten right because rotten is related to harvest etc you know the idea of being a cook or a chef and and there's also a sense of excess like i uh sometimes like the show master chef and i've been watching master chef junior um which is just <laughs> It's these eight-year-old kids who can cook, you know, better than I'll ever be able to, which is, you know, weird and obsessive and beautiful. But then they just have these moments where they just waste to do this, like, scene. They waste, like, thousands of pounds of sugar to shoot this scene. And it's just like, oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I guess, like, in brief, like, there were sometimes the personal life of the artist suggested something to me that was evocative of the Buddha family. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I wanted a particular material or medium 
that I thought would communicate like a razor blade or a sword. And then I would kind of like do a little bit of research about that. And uh, so I, I attacked it at, at, from a lot of different angles. And uh, some of the artists I knew going in, I wanted to write about. Uh, and then others I learned about in the process of doing it and others just kind of like popped up. And so it was kind of an intuitive process. Yeah. And it's, and it's kind of 26 different biographical research projects at the same time. Um, That was pretty amazing. You know, there's basically these 26 essays interwoven with Buddhist teachings on the five wisdom energies, but you really get into the biographical information of each artist and as well as an analysis of their work via this lens, which it is, you're absolutely right. This is like one of the best lens for art analysis I've, I've seen, you know, it is, I would say this book is kind of niche, you know, in that sense that like probably the Venn diagram of people who are, you know, already interested in, in these, you know, Zen or tantric Buddhist models that you come from, and also in, you know, artists in art history, maybe it's a, maybe it's a small group, but I thought you really opened it up in a way that was like, uh, I mean, your, your work, you were very Padma writing this book because you did take such an interest in, in all of these different artists, right? Would you say you have a lot of Padma energy? Yeah, yes. I mean, it's, it's weird. That was like the hardest one for me to write, which is probably like, because I, have the most unresolved <laughs> relationship with that. But like, in a way, I kind of went nuts in the manner of each of them. Like I spaced out, I got super pissed <laughs> off. I was swanning around pontificating about how this was the greatest book ever written. And then I was like, it's terrible and no one loves me. And then I was like checking to see how other people's sales of books that were, t- I was like crazy. It was totally nuts. Uh, but you know, got through it. Yeah, I mean, it it is a little niche, but I also think like that's part of what I hope to start to pick away at because like people still think that like Buddhism is is niche, even though it's like you know twenty six hundred years old or whatever. Or like the idea that like art is something that certain people can like look at or enjoy, but you need to know something about you know the life of. Monet in order to, and you just don't, all you need is like, what you need to meditate and what you need to appreciate art is the same, which is time and a place to sit. And like, it might not be for everybody. And of course that's fine, but like, I don't think it's over anyone's head. I think like what I, like, I didn't go to college. I didn't like study art history formally. I mean, I just had the Google box and some, you know, McNally Jackson on order, <laughs> you know, just ordering <laughs> books. Uh, and you just need an interest and curiosity. But, you know, like if it's something that you are interested in, then it's not really a a, a chore. But I, anyway, my, my point just being that like the Dharma is for everybody and, and art is for everybody. And everybody enjoys art it might not be quote unquote fine arts, but if you're watching like, you know, whatever, like cage fighting or WCW wrestling or a Netflix show or listening to, you know, banjo music, you're appreciating art and, and, and that it is everywhere. It's in the food that you eat. It's how you dress. Even if you pride yourself on not thinking about what you're wearing, that is a way of presenting oneself that is artful. Uh, even and maybe it's it's mindlessness. So like, it's just uh, it's not it's not something that belongs to a certain group of people with a certain kind of education. It's about one's life and uh, and it something we all have access to if we want it. Well, I totally agree. And same about Buddhism, right? And that goes yeah. back to the, the the reason the Buddha the Buddha at first did not, it was only a later iteration, my understanding at least, that the Buddha, that Buddhism was even translated into Sanskrit because at the time of the Buddha, that was really the more institutional uh, spiritual language of the Brahmin caste, so it wouldn't be accessible, right? So Buddhism is not meant to be an academic or elitist or overly privileged pursuit. He wanted it taught in colloquial language, which also means 
the language that people are already speaking, right? So that's the other part of this, that like artists do speak a certain experiential language, you know, and everybody speaks a certain experiential language. And the translation of these teachings into creative uh, uh, practitioners' minds or people who appreciate art is going to look different from like how a neuroscientist, you know, looks at it, right? Totally. But hopefully those groups of people can still talk to each other, which is, I think, what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a, it, we, we need to approach these things from, from all angles. Yeah. But like, but fundamentally that like what artists are, are doing, I mean, obviously there's a lot of conceptual art or whatever, and that's great. But like artists are communicating something about their experience that uh, rather than trying to write a story about it or talk about it or use language, they're using gesture, color, form, shape, juxtaposition, scale, uh, different media, all of these things which communicate directly but are also not hampered by conceptual language. Mm -hmm. And uh, as uh, the, I remember early days of studying Buddhism, the, the, the primacy was paid to one's own experience, the ability to have one's own experience and, uh, and, and trust that. Uh, not to not to believe it per per se, but to to trust one's own capacity to have a direct experience, and uh, and I think that's what artists offer us, and what we uh, are also offered in the Dharma. Well, Kevin Townley, the book again is called "Look, Look, 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 Look Again." <laughs> uh, uh, Buddhist wisdom reflected in twenty six artists. Um, it's Great to have you on the podcast. I want to have you back sometime. It's been a really, really great conversation. And thanks so much for this really awesome book. Really love oh, it. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Ethan. All right. Well, so for the Road Home Podcast, this is Ethan Nickturn, and uh, we'll see you next time. 